This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, physicist and author Alan Lightman is joined in conversation by CIIS's Matthew Siegel to explore our human quest for truth and meaning, and the role of religion and science in that quest. This event was recorded on April 19, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. Thank you for joining us tonight for what I hope will be uh, an intimate and uh, deeply probing conversation uh, with with Alan here. Alan and I have... uh, had a few phone calls and email exchanges, and I'm really looking forward to digging into the ideas and experiences that you've shared in your book, uh, your latest book. Um, so before we get into the book, Alan, I'd really love to hear a bit about um, your own personal and professional journey. Uh, you're both a theoretical physicist, uh, an accomplished theoretical physicist, and a best-selling novelist and nonfiction author. And that's um, an uncommon combination. Uh, One of my favorite philosophers, Alan Watts, who some of you may be familiar with, used to talk about two personality types, uh, a prickly type and a gooey type. And the prickly type, um, they're concerned more with um, precise and rigorous logical definitions. The gooey type is more concerned with deep feeling uh, and just living rather than explaining. You seem to strike a balance between those two. And I'm curious, uh, I don't know if you are a believer in karma and reincarnation, but maybe there's just some bi- biographical reason, <laughs> if not a past life inheritance, that could explain that balance that you're able to strike. Do you want to uh, unpack that? How well, is that possible? Well, I love the, the adjectives prickly and gooey. That's marvelous. Um, uh, I was interested in both the arts and science as a child, and I think that a lot of children are have we have dual interests um, and our our parents and our teachers and our friends sort of talk us out of that because it's easier to go through life if you're either the artistic type intuitive spontaneous gooey or the the scientific type analytical methodical deliberate prickly and uh, it's just easier to make a way through life if you're one or the other Uh, I wasn't uh, that aware of the distinction when I was growing up Um, I just did the things that I like to do. I like to play with chemistry sets and mix chemicals and build rockets, and also like to write poetry um, and take long walks. Uh, when I <clears throat> when I got to college, uh, I started feeling the pressures to to go in one direction or the other, and um, I 
I resisted those pressures and uh, was very fortunate to have been able to make a life as both a scientist and as, as a writer. Um, when I, I was at Harvard for many years and then when I went to MIT I went with a joint professorship in the sciences and the humanities and uh, MIT uh, allowed me to, to, to have that schizophrenic uh, personality. We would call it integral here at CIS. Okay, the integral. <laughs> okay, integral, that's a much better <laughs> word for it. Uh, yes, the integral personality. I, I do think that it, that it is useful to keep the disciplines separate in some ways. Um, I totally appreciate the integrative interdisciplinary impulse and it's, it's important, but it's also important to realize that, that there are different kinds of knowledge and we need different tools for that knowledge. And when we're taking uh, a physics course, we really need to, to learn calculus and differential equations and thermodynamics. And we, we have to do that in kind of an emotionless way. Uh, and when we're, we're taking humanities course or an art course, we, we, we have to avoid quantifying uh, because that's really not the essence of what it's about. And uh, you, do, you do need different sets of tools. And so I think that, uh, that we're right, that, that our educational institutions are right in having different disciplines and different departments. Uh, but at the same time, it's it's important that that, that there be people who, who who cross over, and see the commonalities of the different things that people are interested in. That kind of segues into a, my next question, which is uh, that another physicist and novelist in uh, I think the late '50s, C. P. Snow, yes, lamented the divide in mm -hmm. universities between the sciences and the humanities, and the way that scientists couldn't recognize a Shakespeare quote and mm -hmm. uh, humanities majors couldn't recognize uh, or couldn't explain the second law of thermodynamics or at least mm -hmm. recognize its importance. And he blamed um, our model of education for that division. And I hear you saying that, well, it's important to actually respect the differences between the way that science produces knowledge and the way that the humanities, various disciplines in the humanities produce knowledge, but yes. do you, do you mm -hmm. think that that division between the two cultures that, that Snow pointed out, has um, has that gap widened or narrowed, or where do you think we are in terms of how higher education handles this, this distinction? Well, I think that, that uh, there's more appreciation than there was in Snow's time of the importance of communicating across the disciplines. And there are a lot of academic departments now that have um, interdisciplinary courses. And the world is, is more uh, interdisciplinary than it used to be. I mean, if you take right. an, an something like the environmental problems, yeah. which of course you know a lot about in California, uh, those problems involve <clears throat> biology, chemistry, uh, sociology, ethics, that there are just a lot of different uh, 
disciplines that come into the study of problems like that. Uh, so uh, it, it, it's important that we that the different disciplines have respect for each other and be able to communicate with each other. Right. Um, so your book, your latest mm -hmm. book, Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine, um, I finished it over the weekend. It was a marvelous read. Unlike so many of the um, forays into this um, conversation, at best, if not debate or argument between science and religion, you're able to um, find a way to respect the insights that each perspective offers. And um, when you look at the uh, the way that there's kind of a culture war right now mm -hmm. between these two perspectives, mm -hmm. these these two worldviews. Mm -hmm. um, you know, on the one hand, there are people who are very much on the side of science, and particularly in an age when um, somehow climate change denial, for example, is is becoming um, more and more of um, a, a problem. Um, and in, on the other hand, there's also a sense in which there's a sort of scientific or technological triumphalism that mm -hmm. um, science and technology can replace, everything. yeah, replace mm -hmm. religion and, and spirituality mm -hmm. uh, with rational rationalism and empiricism mm -hmm. or what have mm -hmm. you. And so I wonder what what was it that motivated you to engage in this um, fraught dialogue between science and religion? Were you are you unhappy with the way that um, scientists who try to communicate about science tend to engage with religious believers? Uh, you know, what, what was your motivation and what are you hoping to accomplish by entering into this dialogue? Well, there have been a couple of motivations. One is that uh, I think that science and religion have been the two greatest forces that have shaped human civilization. So, uh, it's been fascinating to me that no matter how science advances uh, and how, how, no matter how many questions that were once considered to be to lie in the realm of philosophy or theology, like how did our universe begin, even though some of those questions are now squarely within the realm of science, that there still is a very vital discussion and uh, dialogue between science and religion. So one is the just the 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 interest and the two these two powerful forces, and the feeling on my own part that that they're both very important. When I speak about religion myself, and as I do in the book, I don't talk about organized religion. I talk about the personal spiritual experience mm -hmm. that's that's what's important to me um the other motivation is that in the last uh 10 or 10 years or 15 years there have been a group of scientists and philosophers who are now called the neo-atheists uh, richard dawkins is the leader of the group but there are other people uh Sam Harris. Larry Krauss, Sam Harris. Daniel Dennett. Daniel Dennett. Mm -hmm. uh, those are the most prominent who have uh, attempted to use scientific arguments to disprove the existence of God or at the very least show that God is unnecessary. And what, uh, what 
and 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 uh, people like Larry Krauss and and uh, Richard Dawkins have a, a condescending attitude towards believers, which is expressed in their writings. And um, uh, I am, first of all, very put off by the condescending attitude. I think that we have, should have respect for other people's beliefs. Uh, but I also think that in terms of using scientific arguments to disprove the existence of God, that, that, there, that the neo-atheists are, are totally missing the point. Uh -huh. That, um, that uh, God is understood by most, both most religious traditions lies outside of time and space lies outside of the physical universe. Um, God can enter the physical universe if he, she, or it chooses to do so, but essentially resides outside of the physical universe. And so you can't use arguments that are based on the physical universe, which is all science is. You can't use scientific arguments to either prove or disprove the existence of God. And, and I hold that view um, as uh, I'm somewhere between an atheist and an agnostic myself. Um, but I, I just think that, that it's, it's futile to use uh, scientific arguments to try to disprove the existence of, of God. And I, th I think on the same token, you can't prove the existence of God either. Uh, so those were the... Uh, I had a, uh, a debate with, um, a public debate with Daniel Dennett in the pages of Salon magazine about, about this issue of whether science could prove or disprove the existence of God. And, and Dennett uh, labeled me as an apologist for religion. Oh, boy. Uh, so I'm certainly not defending religion wholesale here. Sure. I'm just uh, saying that, that you're, you're barking up the wrong tree if you're trying to use physical arguments to, to disprove the existence of God. So in, in your book, you reference um, William James's famous book, Varieties of Religious Experience, and you excerpt, uh, I think it was a priest's recounting of his experience, mystical experience, mm -hmm. And he, he, this quote ends with uh, this priest saying that this experience, not a logical argument, but an experience was the, the most proof that he had ever had of God's existence. And yes. you also talk about your own mm -hmm. uh, transcendent or mystical experience in this book, uh, mm -hmm. and that if it didn't lead you to the belief in God, it at least, I think, allowed you to recognize uh, and respect those who would interpret the experience in that way. And yes. Do you want to say a bit about what that experience was like for you and, and if and how it changed your, your perspective on these questions? Well, I think uh, all of us have uh, transcendent experiences, and, and by that I mean the, the feeling, uh, the very vital, immediate feeling of being connected to something larger than yourself and to feeling some unseen order in the world. That, that's what I call the transcendent experience. And, and by spiritual universe, I mean, for me, the, the collection of all of those experiences. That, to me, is what the spiritual universe is. It's, it's not 
necessarily belief in God. It's not necessarily belief in uh, in a divinity. It's not necessarily uh, following the the statements of, of organized religion. It, it's the collection of personal experiences that one has that are of that nature. And and I'll just describe one one of my experiences, but I don't think mine are have any greater value than those of other people, but just to show you what I'm talking about personally, um, uh, my wife and I spend the summers on a small island in Maine, and uh, uh, we all have our own boats because it's, there's no ferry service or bridges. And, and one evening I was going back to the island late at night, it was after midnight, and uh, I was the only one out on the water and it was a, a dark, clear night, and the sky vibrated with stars. And I took a chance and turned off the running lights of the boat, and it got even darker. And then I took another chance and turned off the engine of the boat, and it got extremely quiet. So I'm out in the ocean. I lay down on my back on the bottom of the boat and looked up at the sky so I'm the only one out there it's still and I'm looking at the dark night sky and I felt like I was falling into infinity and I lost all track of time all track of my body and I felt like the vast expanse of time from long before I was born to long after I will die was compressed to a dot. And I felt like I was connected to something, not just to the stars, but to everything. And it's a feeling completely without ego. And uh, I don't know how long I was lying there but at some point I got up and turned the engine back on. And I think that, that we've all had experiences like that. It may not be lying on a boat in the ocean looking up at the stars, but it, uh, that kind of feeling. And, and that's what I call the transcendent experience, and I think that that personal experience is, is the basis for uh, a lot of religious and spiritual belief. For me, it's not what I read in the sacred books or what the church tells me. It's having experiences like that. That's, that's what it's all about for me. And, and you could have, um, I'm, I'm a scientist and I do believe that the world is material, that it's all atoms and molecules, but you could have hooked up every neuron of my brain to a computer and read out every electrical impulse of every neuron while I was lying in that boat having that experience and you and and taken all of that data and you would not have understood the experience with all of that data I want to get to this question of the place of consciousness in a material universe uh, in, yeah, a, in a okay. few minutes here all right. Um, well, I'm, so, I'm sorry if I've jumped ahead. Oh, no, no. We can go out of order. It's fine. Yeah. Um, but 
you know, uh, Plato talked about the stars in a number of his dialogues mm-hmm. as um, the teachers uh, of, of human beings. And in many ways, the origins of um, our ability to track the seasons and our understanding of time and, of mm-hmm. course, um, the scientific revolution itself was birthed out of uh, using new observational techniques and technologies to to observe what's going on uh, up there. And your book starts uh, with this meditation uh, while you're in a cave in France, which has these um, seventeen thousand year old uh, paintings mm-hmm. of animals, and um, you were sort of ruminating on what the experience of these primal human beings must mm-hmm. have been, just observing the natural world around them, mm-hmm. observing the night sky before electricity, so that it didn't matter where you were, you could always see the Milky Way and the stars above. Mm-hmm. And it seems like in the modern period, with electricity and the hustle and bustle of all the things going on in the horizontal realm, we've forgotten our, our we've, we've connection. We've lost a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that science has revealed that I find to be uh, quite um, spiritual, if not religiously provocative, is the idea that we're actually, uh, the stars are our ancestors. We're the children of, of, of stars. Right? All, all the atoms in our bodies were, were made in stars. Yeah. yeah. So do you think that there is actually a, um, a spirituality that can be derived from the scientific view of the universe that yeah. we're just beginning to articulate what that new kind of spirituality might look like well i think the the fact that 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 that, that modern science believes that all of the atoms in our body heavier than hydrogen hydrogen is the lightest atom but mm-hmm. then you go up to helium and then lithium and carbon and so on that all the atoms in our body heavier than hydrogen were made in stars where hydrogen atoms collided and fused together to make helium and then helium atoms collided and fused together to make carbon and all of this happened in the nuclear furnaces at the centers of stars and then the stars some some stars not all explode and they spew out all of those heavier atoms into space and those atoms drift for millions hundreds of millions of years and eventually coalesce and form planets and then solar systems and 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 then new life so if you could if you could trace each atom of your body backwards in time it would it would first go through your parents and then it would go through the ground and the soil and the air and then when you got back to a few, a few billion years, it would, you, could, you could follow the atom, it would be in outer space. And then when you got back to a couple of billion years before that, it would, it would end up, each atom would end up in some star. That's what scientists believe. I mean, that's, we have a lot of evidence that that's where our atoms came from. That totally blows my mind. Yeah. I yeah. mean, anybody who doesn't see something spiritual in that they're just not, they're not awake. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not feeling, they're not thinking about the, the significance of that. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty amazing. And uh, that sort of connects us 
all, at least you can be a materialist. I'm a, I'm a materialist. But I can follow each one of those atoms all the way back to a star somewhere. And it may not just be one star. Mm-hmm. There are probably several stars that exploded in our cosmic neighborhood that produce the atoms that are on Earth. And that's pretty mind, mind-boggling to me. Yeah. Well, me too. So the um, uh, materialist perspective goes all the way back to ancient Greece mm-hmm. uh, with the atomists, Democritus, and, right. and so on. But it wasn't until uh, the, the so-called scientific revolution uh, in the 16th and 17th century in Europe that um, this atomistic, materialistic, and mechanistic philosophy really um, exploded uh, and Maybe it started with Copernicus, let's say, and his heliocentric model of the universe. And um, buried in a footnote in your book is a reference to a, uh, a biochemist and a sinologist, historian of China, Joseph Needham, mm-hmm. who asked this question after studying um, Chinese civilization, which mm-hmm. during the medieval period in Europe, um, Chinese civilization was quite advanced um, mm-hmm. technologically and scientifically. and but for some reason, what we think of today as modern science didn't emerge there. It emerged in Europe. Mm-hmm. And Needham asked this question, why? Why, why is that? Mm-hmm. And um, he, right he suggests that um, China, influenced by Taoism, had this more organic view of the universe, where um, the universe was understood to be something that, that grows, whereas in the West, influenced by um, Christianity, there's this understanding of the universe as something made, more like an artifact um, designed by um, a deity. And um, Needham was influenced by one of my favorite philosophers, Alfred North Whitehead. Uh, I know that he's one of your favorites. And Whitehead also had an organic view of of the universe. And Whitehead also was a a student of the history of, of science. And he suggested that um, the reason that science, this mechanistic form of science that looks for the causes uh, of, of material events, the reason it emerged in Europe was um, basically that it was a derivative of medieval theology and the idea that there is a God who designed and created this universe, um, an omnipotent, omniscient God that really wanted to pay attention to every, every last detail. And the early scientists really thought that they were discovering the handiwork of God and that mathematics was the language that God used to describe the universe. So what do you think about that, that historical perspective on the emergence of science? Not well, so I much think, as a radical break, but maybe there's some continuity there, actually. Well, I, I know that, that, that historians of science have, have, have pondered for a long time why science as we know it now uh, originated in the West and I think that there are other factors than the ones that you have mentioned uh, that seem to me to be more direct. Um, I'm not dismissing what you said, but I just think there are other factors. Uh, one is that uh, that in the East and uh, in the Islamic countries, there was uh, a lot of emphasis put on the authority of the sacred books. 
and and modern science does not accept authority of 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 any authority uh the only what what science believes starting from Galileo Copernicus Galileo on uh, is what we what we believe in science is what we can verify by our own experiments and we, we don't accept given authority for what we believe so that's the experimental method of science the other uh, factor uh, to add to the ones you mentioned is, is more subtle, and that is that, w that the Chinese philosophy, let's take China because you mentioned Joseph Needham, uh, of having an organic view of things, that, that everything is connected to everything else, and uh, part of that view is that, uh, is that things that happen are not caused by necessarily direct causes before them, but are caused by a confluence of accidents right. that happen all at once. A kind of synchronicity. Synchronicity. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the idea of or organism, or organ, organicism, whatever the noun is for that, I, I don't know what it is. Organicity. And, and synchronicity. <laughs> organicity and synchronicity, that, uh, that precludes, uh, that's an opposition to thinking of the world as, as made of things that you can isolate, like pool balls on a table, and this pool ball moves because this pool ball hit it, you know, cause and effect. Mm -hmm. But cause and effect, you can talk about cause and effect only when you can isolate individual objects. Object A did this because object B did that. You, you sort of draw a box around object A, another box around object B. They're separate objects that one affects the other. And that kind of reasoning, which is both the ability to, to isolate small pieces of a system rather than just keep always looking at the system as a whole, and the ability to, to establish causal relationships between things. That is antagonistic to the Chinese view, but it is also the view that allowed modern science to develop. It allowed uh, uh, Galileo's experiments with falling bodies and the formula that it takes for a body to fall a certain distance. It's uh, the, the distance that a body falls uh, quadruples when you double the time. Uh, distance goes as time squared. That's a quantitative law. Uh, the kind of thinking of science allowed the development of, uh, allowed Alexander Fleming to isolate uh, penicillin. It allowed us to uh, develop uh, quantum physics and produce computer chips that go in our smartphones. It allowed us to calculate the orbits of spaceships and land a human being on the moon. All of those things follow from the, the viewpoint 
of the world in which you can isolate, you can take a system and you can break it down into subsystems which you can study in individual parts and establish cause and relationships. It, it allowed what we call modern science and that to de develop, in, develop in the West. Um, I think that, 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 that that's just one factor. You know, I think there were a lot of factors. So Certainly. If you add what you said to what I said, I think that, that uh, those are some factors that caused this. Um, I don't think that, that, that Western civilization is superior to Eastern civilization by any means at all. Uh, but I think that, 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 that modern science as we know it came out of Western science. I mean, the, the Chinese who still have all of their traditions and the I Ching and everything else, they use smartphones over there. The smartphone would not exist without Western science. Do you think that um, in the 20th century with the um, quantum revolution that this notion of um, nature as a collection of isolated particles is still an adequate account? Um, what do you make of quantum non-locality? Does it seem like with the reductionistic methods of modern science pushed to their extreme that actually what was discovered uh, kind of contradicts the, at least the Newtonian model? Yes, it, it does. I, I agree with you on that. And uh, what, what we're referring to, uh, Matt is referring to, for those who have not had um, a course in quantum physics, um, is that uh, that we found in the 20th century that if you go to very small sizes, atomic sizes, that particles behave as if they can be in several places at once. And that's called the wave duality of nature. Uh, just like a wave can be, is, is, is not at one point, it's spread out over a region, that, that particles behave both as, as waves that are spread out and localizable, and that uh, it's harder. You can't speak of really isolating a thing when it can be in several places at once. Um, I think that that uh, that that's quite true, but I think that that our mathematics has sort of allowed us to to go beyond the simple picture of 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 of, of isolated particles and and we we are now uh, uh, there's a lot about uh, the modern world uh, that that uh, that has gone beyond our sensory perception sure uh, but I still would argue that the basic idea of cause and effect is still embodied in our science, including our quantum science. So there's a sense in which what I, what I hear you saying and what I understand is that um, the mathematics associated with quantum theory have run far ahead of our ability to actually picture or imagine what, what might be going on physically. Yes, yes I, I think that's right. Do you feel uh, that, like that there's a, a need to um, come up with a, a better 
um, a picture that we could make sense of, or is it just the case at this point, at that level of nature, that the mathematics work, and we shouldn't, we should stop asking what the mathematics mean? Well, I think we should, we should always keep trying to, to ask what the mathematics means and trying to picture it, but I think we also have to, 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 to accept the fact that our sensory apparatus is very crude, and there are wavelengths of light that our eyes can't see. We know that. We can build instruments that can detect X-rays and radio waves, but our eyes can't see them. And we can measure other, we can build other instruments that can show how time does not behave in an, in an absolute way that, that, that clocks in motion relative to each other tick at a different rate. We don't experience that in, in daily life. And uh, as we as we have advanced in our science, especially in the 20th century with, with relativity and quantum physics, we have learned that um, that our, our sensory experience of the world is extremely limited. Well, I, I mean, even with Copernicus, um, you know, and people had thought that um, the Earth is stationary uh, and, and the heavens are revolving right. around, around us. Right. And already right. with, with Copernicus, the mathematical model, the geometrical model is superseding our sensory experience, yes. right? Yes, yes. So You're it's right. pretty foundational to yes. the scientific perspective. Yes, that, that's, that, I agree with you. Um, so there's a certain way in which the history of science is, is told and recounted that, um, as you were suggesting, that, that even these early scientists, Copernicus, Galileo, um, Newton, they were not uh, accepting the authority of ancient books, but looking for themselves and, and describing their observations mm -hmm. and building theories and testing them. Uh, but it's also true that um, Copernicus was a Neoplatonist, and uh, Kepler, who improved on Copernicus's model, uh, was um, an astrologer and had a, a view of the heavens as um, archetypal powers and that he was participating in their their music mm -hmm. uh, and that Newton was um, a, an alchemist and uh, Giordano Bruno who was burnt at the stake by the Catholic Church um, usually it's it's said that he was burnt at the stake for his heliocentrism but he was also a political radical and he was questioning the divinity of Jesus and so there are other reasons that he was mm -hmm. burned mm -hmm. at the stake by the Inquisition uh, but it, it seems like these early scientists were way weirder than is often acknowledged uh, when the history of science is told. Um, as weirder in what sense? You mean that they had these other beliefs? Yeah. Uh, so what, yeah. What, do you, what do you think about that? Do you think that they were just, those beliefs were sort of just a holdover from a, a pre-modern, pre-scientific perspective and that they just hadn't yet grown out of them? Or Well, I think that it's very hard to put our, you know, our, our 21st century minds back into the, the minds of someone living in the 17th, 16th, 17th century. It's, it's very hard to, 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 to understand how those people were thinking. Uh, and historians have this problem all, all the time in writing history. But there were religion was a much stronger part of, of daily life and culture than 
than it is in most parts of the world now. And so anyone who was, who was educated like Newton would have also come from a religious background and would be expected to, to go into the church in, in some form or another. And so the, these beliefs, uh, the Kepler's beliefs that the orbits of planets representing the, the, the music of the spheres and, and God's plan, and Newton was also believed that the, the orbits of planets would not continue unless every once in a while God would, would take his, his finger and give them a little push. Right. That, that, um, that those beliefs were just part of the culture. And um, I think that, 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 that everyone had beliefs like that. Yeah. It was part of the time. Do you think scientists practicing today still have um, cultural beliefs that shape their interpretations? Oh, I'm, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm no doubt. But in terms of, of, of specifically religious beliefs, uh, and people have done surveys uh, that, that about uh, the figure for the general public as a whole in the United States is that about 80% of people believe in God. I mean, whatever God means to the individual person, they would say, yes, I believe in God. And the number for scientists is about 25%. So there is a difference in religious beliefs between people trained as scientists and not. But I'm sure that there, there are many other cultural beliefs that we have, uh, probably quite a few that we're not even conscious of. That, that scientists would share as well as non-scientists. So in, for Newton, when, when he would describe the um, behavior of, of planets in their orbits um, or apples falling from trees, uh, when he would talk about laws of nature, mm -hmm. his way of understanding where those laws came from would make reference to God. That's right. In, in your understanding of the universe, um, as a materialist who uh, mm -hmm. is either agnostic or somewhere yep. between agnostic and atheist, where are these laws in a universe that's entirely materialistic? Well, that's a great question. Um, uh, I think that, that uh, there are certain fundamental laws um, and uh, the, if I just take, for example, uh, uh, relativity, Einstein's relativity, and the, the underpinning of that is there is no absolute motion, that all motion is relative. Um, there's no fixed reference point in the cosmos uh, against which you can measure motion. You can only measure motion against something else, but, but there's no invisible train station out there. Um, I think that, that it's impossible to form a universe, and, I, and, and scientists today think that, that, that our universe and, and, 
w uh, came out of a, a quantum fluctuation, is what we call it, but uh, that, that universes, new universes are coming into being all the time. Uh, I think that it is impossible to form a universe without certain, a few fundamental laws that you, that you just, it would be a mathematical inconsistency like two plus two equal four and two plus two equal three, both at the same time, mm -hmm. a mathematical inconsistency. So I think that, that, that are, uh, there are a small number of laws that are required for mathematical consistency of a physical universe. And, and so when you ask where the laws came from, my answer would be that if you didn't have these laws, you wouldn't have anything. Um, I don't know whether that's a fully satisfying answer because you could also ask the question, why is there something rather than nothing? which is an even more fundamental question. And that's a question that I have no clue about, but I think it's a very important question. Why is there something rather than nothing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it was the philosopher Leibniz who first formulated that question. Yeah. Um, and after several hundred years of, of science, the question remains. Oh, I don't think there, there's any way that we can answer that question. Why so, is there something rather than nothing? Um, unless... I mean, if you if you believe in God, then that might be an answer. So, it seems to me, in my reading of your book and and my you know um, cursory understanding of uh, contemporary science, is that there are really two remaining mysteries or just big problems for the natural scientific perspective. One is the origins of the universe mm -hmm. that we were just talking about, and the other is the nature of consciousness and mm -hmm. what is consciousness's place in the physical universe. Do you see these two problems as solvable or as intrinsically mysterious? And that at, at that point, trying to understand where the universe came from, why is there something rather than nothing, and trying to understand how consciousness could emerge in the context of an otherwise completely material cosmos, do, do you see these as just intrinsically mysterious and that the limits of science uh, are such that an answer cannot be given? Well, we're definitely up against the limits of science in those two questions. And, and science does have limitations. Uh, science can't address all the interesting questions that there are. Um, uh, I, I don't think that science will ever be able to to answer those questions uh, definitively. But I think that uh, there are uh, theories of how the universe came into being. Right. And, and you, can, you can write down equations for that. And there, uh, the late Stephen Hawking uh, was one of the people who worked on this uh, how the universe came into being. And, but there are other very eminent physicists who've worked on this, and, and there are theories. We, we can't fully test those theories uh, because we can't go back and, and see how it happened. Um, on consciousness, 
Uh, I think uh, that we will know more and more about how the brain works uh, as time goes on, and I think neuroscientists have made a lot of progress in understanding how the brain works. Uh, there's still a huge amount that we don't know. Uh, but even if we do, it, let's say we did understand uh, how all the neurons worked and how memory was stored and uh, how the, 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 the information was, was exchanged uh, from one synapse to the next and, and all of that, we still might not be able to answer the question, what is consciousness? Uh, it could be, and this is actually my view, that consciousness is, is a name that we give to the sensation produced by all of the electrical and chemical activity of the hundred billion neurons and that three pounds of stuff up there. It produces a sensation and that sensation is what makes us, it, we, we give that the name consciousness, we give it the name self or, or I-ness or ego, all of those names we're giving to that sensation of all of those zillions of, of electrical currents and acetylcholine that's being exchanged between neurons. Uh, it's, it's uh, I think you used the word emergent phenomena. Um, it, it's, uh, you can understand how the, all the individual parts of a system work, but if it's a very complicated system, uh, the qualitative behavior of the system as a whole uh, can be different than the, the behavior of the individual parts. And, and consciousness is, is something like that. Mm -hmm. So assuming that it is some kind of emergent phenomenon, mm -hmm. do you see, there's still a couple of possibilities given that hypothesis, do you see consciousness as something that is merely epiphenomenal? In other words, it's sort of like, I think it was T.H. T.H. Huxley who described it as the whistle on a train. It has no causal influence on how the train behaves. So consciousness then is this illusion that's produced by neural activity, but where we might think, we speak colloquially, uh, colloquially as though we could exert will uh, to guide our own behaviors, but that's merely a way of speaking. Or do you see this emergent phenomenon as something that truly does have causal power over over the body, over the, the parts of which it is yeah. an emergent product? Well, I think it, it, it has uh, causal power because you can willfully change your thinking about something. I mean, you can, you can willfully decide, I'm, I'm going to stop eating broccoli. Uh, but I think that that the the activity of our brain that we're conscious of is only a tiny fraction of what's going on, 
and, and I wanted to tell you about an experiment that was done 10 years ago by some German neuroscientists that is really frightening. Um, uh, and it's been reproduced and it's pretty much accepted in the scientific community. Um, they took some subjects and people and put them in front of, of computer screens and asked them to, uh, they were given a choice between A or B uh, every, you know, 10 or 20 seconds, and they had to choose A or B. You know, just like maybe one green button and one blue button, and you choose either the green button or the blue button. And when you when you've made the decision that you're going to choose the blue button on that round of the experiment, you 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 press a button. <clears throat> so they they while this was going on, they connected they mapped the brain activity of the subjects. And and they, they were able to locate the regions of the brain uh, that lit up in the decision-making process. And they found that they could see those areas lighting up and even predict whether A or B was going to be chosen a full 10 seconds before the subject was consciously aware of having made the decision. Now, if you think about that for a while, it's really scary because it, it brings into all of the, the great philosophical questions uh, of free will versus determinism and the illusion of self because most people associate the self with, with consciousness. I mean, you, you have to be conscious to have a self, to have an ego. But what this experiment shows is that there's a huge, there's a vast amount of, of purely material mechanical stuff that's going on, operations in your brain that you're unconscious of but it's actually calling the shots. Yeah. So there's no driver in the cockpit. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we've known at least since Freud, right, that there are all these unconscious drives right. and, and motives that um, influence our behavior and that the ego is not the master of its own, right. its own house, right. right? And neuroscience seems to be confirming that on a physiological level. Yeah. And, you know, there are some... Um, spiritual perspectives buddhism for example which would agree that the self is an illusion mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. but there's a, a sense in which even if we describe consciousness as an illusion that sensation that that you were mm -hmm. describing is still there so somehow the brain is producing an illusion right that is not material because we're here experiencing it even if it's not a self which exerts free will, where does that sensation come well, from? Well, we have the sensation. We, we know that. Whatever you call it, there, the sensation is there. And, uh, you know, I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Whether it's an illusion or not, I'll, I'm, I'm happy with the sensation. What do you think about the idea that uh, this sensation is 
um, not merely a sort of peripheral evolutionary accident that we accidentally happen to experience, but that as material, physical mm-hmm. beings, we are experiencing the intrinsic nature of matter itself, perhaps in a very complex form, but that there's something hidden to the objective, objectifying methods of science um, when it looks at matter from the outside that as human beings we experience personally from the inside and that it's perfectly fine for science to study the material universe as though it was just um, surfaces colliding that can be um, mathematically described but that we actually have evidence of another quality of matter rooted in our own experience. Yes. Well, um, uh, we certainly have experience of, of what happens when you, when you take 100 billion neurons and you connect each one to 1,000 other neurons we, that produces this unusual sensation that we call consciousness. We certainly have experience with that. Um, I don't know whether we have experience of what it's like to be a rock, for example. And, and a rock also has atoms in it, like we, like the atoms in our bodies. But those atoms are, are not arranged in the particular manner that produces the sensation of consciousness, as far as we know. Yeah. They certainly have, have, have never told us that or, or spoken to us. And I think that, that, that consciousness probably operates on a continuum. That is, if you start with, with very which animals much lower than, than, than humans, amoebas, and single-cell animals, and you go up to human beings and there's everything in between. You know, there are crows and dolphins and dogs that, that emote and communicate with us. Um, they probably have some level of consciousness that I think it's a continuum uh, and and probably you need a, a minimum number of neurons and connections between neurons to produce a sensation which begins to rise to the level of consciousness but the reason one of the reasons I, I, I think it's a continuum is you can imagine uh, deconstructing my brain let's say we take my brain and we could uh, disassemble it one neuron at a time. So let's say we have some, some very skilled doctors and you know, wearing gloves and scrub suits, and they start disassembling my brain one neuron at a time. Well, at some point, um, I will start getting disoriented. You know, I'll, I'll maybe uh, forget where I am, at some point, I will start losing some memories. Um, I may not be able to speak. And, and gradually, everything that I associate with consciousness and with myself and my ego will disappear. And it will happen gradually, you know, if they're taking, you know, one neuron at a time. And, and of course, we, we haven't done this terrible experiment, but, but but it happens with some forms of dementia where people uh, are losing their, their brain cells or their brain connections uh, a little by little. 
and uh, at some point uh, they're so far gone uh, that they they have no sense of self and can't communicate at all. But there's an intermediate stage where where uh, patients suffering from dementia can uh, recognize what they're losing and can communicate that. And of course, it's a very grim subject. And I've had loved ones who have suffered from dementia, and I'm, probably some of you have as well. But but uh, there are websites where you can read reports of people suffering from dementia where they haven't you know slipped over the edge yet. I have a good friend who's suffering from dementia, and she writes to me every month or two, and I can see that she's gradually losing everything that you would associate with the self and awareness. And so I do think that this that there's a continuum here, that consciousness is not an all or nothing thing, that it's it's really I'm giving sort of the material explanation of it now, that it's it's uh, it's it arises from all these neurons and connections between them. Question for you, Alan. Uh, you you reference um, the so-called final theory of of physics. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's called the grand unifying theory, mm -hmm. and um, it would probably have something to do with unifying quantum physics and relativity. And mm -hmm. uh, do you think that you know we've just been talking about consciousness? Do you do you think that physicists could arrive at a final theory without answering this question of where at least the sensation of being conscious comes I, from. I definitely do, yeah. So that question is sort of extraneous, in other words. I, I think so. Um, but, I, but, you know, we should, we should add the addendum that even if there is a final theory of physics, uh, you know, one grand equation that, that answers everything, we would, we would never know if we had it. Because you can never be sure whatever theory you have in physics that there might not be an experiment tomorrow that will contradict the theory. So every, all the knowledge we have in science is provisional. To thank you, Matt, for being so incredibly prepared, articulate, bringing your own understanding, philosophy, and science, and the history of science to this uh, conversation. That you've you've been really wonderful. Uh, thanks for letting me experiment on you, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't disembody uh, dis my brains yeah, yeah. one neuron at a time. Please don't do that to me. I won't. <laughs> I didn't bring my gloves. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.